Good morning. Thanks, thanks to the young Bruno Mars singing. A... That's awesome. We also have some visitors from sister churches. So Christine is from the church in Singapore. She's got some friends of hers visiting touring New Zealand as well. So could you stand wherever she is? She's somewhere. Oh, hey, sorry. I'm like Alberto. And also, we have some visitors from Indiana, the church in Indiana. I don't, I don't know who you are, but I know you're here. There you are. Okay. Welcome. Welcome to New Zealand. And I love our church. We're, we're, we're excited about God and his work. And, and we also have a big conference coming up in 2020. And I've seen that almost 30 people have registered for this. It's, it's in Orlando, Florida. But it seems like there's a theme. Nobody really knows where they're staying yet. <laughs> so all 30 of us are going to cram into one room. I think we're staying with the Saludes. Is that right? <laughs> Where is everybody staying? But but close to thirty adults, I think, have already registered for this for this conference in July 2020. That's going to be awesome. And this morning we're looking at the book of First Corinthians. So if, if you're a guest with us, we're just kind of plowing through the book of First Corinthians. Today we're in chapter seven. So if you have a Bible, we'll turn over there. It's quite a long chapter, but and, and it's a bit difficult to chew on. But we'll look at three points that are relevant for us today. And before we do so, I'd like to pray. And then we'll dive into the scriptures. God, we are, we are so grateful to, to be before you and, and have your scriptures to guide us and inspire us and convict us and, and call us to a lifestyle worthy of the calling. And I pray that as we read this morning that your spirit really does do the work that it's supposed to do and enlighten us and point us to Jesus and uh, help us be unified more and more and spread the gospel throughout this city and this country. We pray all of this in your son Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's read together chapter 7. It's a long one, so bear with me, and then we'll talk about three points this morning. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the Corinthian stance. They have some very specific questions that they've asked Paul. That's their stance. Even in marriage, they say that sexual intimacy shouldn't be allowed because you're a spiritual being and that could be sensual and sinful. So that's their position. And in verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. All throughout this section, you'll see Paul give equal status to men and women, which is very important. In verse 5, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So their position was no intimacy. And Paul says, no, that's not correct. But if you do just for a minute so that you can pray and then come back together. And then in verse six, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. 
One has this gift, another has that. And we're going to talk about what all this means, but often this passage has been celebrated like being single is better than being married. That's kind of how it's interpreted, but that's not necessarily true. Not that, so what, what, that's not Paul's point, rather. And so what, we'll find out what he is saying, but even in this verse, he's saying, I have the gift of celibacy, and other people have other gifts, implying in the logic that even marriage is a gift. Listen, I have this gift of celibacy, you have another gift, and everybody else has different gifts, and so you can't look down on any of them. Now, in verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And why does he say that? Well, Jesus himself addressed this very issue on divorce and marriage. And so it's directly from Jesus that Paul's quoting this in verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, not I, I, not the Lord. And people say, okay, you don't have to listen to this. This is Paul, Paul's thoughts, Paul's advice. And Jesus didn't give any ruling on this specific situation. That's why he's saying, I, not the Lord. But he'll go on to say, I think I have the spirit. I think I'm trustworthy. I think I'm an apostle with apostolic ruling. So here's the ideal in these scenarios. Verse 12, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her unbelieving husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. There's, there's something Uniquely spiritual when a believer is married to a non-believer in the hope that they can eventually win them over to the gospel. That's sancti- it's not like they're saved at that point, but there is some kind of sanctification as well as the children. So God's giving grace in this situation. In verse 15, but if the unbeliever believes, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. And now he seems to shift gears, but it's still related. In verse 18, was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. However, that would happen. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? And he doesn't say remain in that, but instead, don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. In verse 22, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person 
as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were when God called them. That becomes a theme, right? Now verse 25, now about virgins. Keep in mind, these are all questions the church has for Paul. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis... We don't know what that present crisis is exactly, but in 1 Corinthians 15, some of the members seem to be falling asleep, not literally, but actually dying. So some kind of crisis is going up. Perhaps that is it. We don't know, but for whatever reason, Paul says, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Basically, are you engaged? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, yeah, what is he talking about here? As Terry alluded to in her communion. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern, or it's actually more literally anxiety. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how I can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a way an undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he, do, he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. It's quite a text to tackle, okay? So be gracious. Be very gracious. If you have some questions, we can talk further afterward because there's quite a bit to chew on. But I want to look at three things that are really helpful when we get from this text. And first, it's proper Bible study, okay? If you've never read the Bible, that's such an important thing is to learn how to have proper Bible study. If you're learning to read the Bible, very important. If you've read the Bible all your life, it's still a very fundamental thing to have proper Bible study. If you don't, you can end up with some wild conclusions. And in this, te- this chapter is notorious for some wild conclusions, strong stances on things that aren't necessarily in the text. All right? Context is king. 
for proper Bible study. For instance, in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, The matters you wrote about. Now, to find out what this passage is all about, the context is the church had penned some letters and with, with questions and had asked very specific questions about their very specific church to Paul. So before we arrive at any conclusion, we have to figure out, well, what were their questions? If we don't, we can start arriving at some wild conclusions. All right. For instance, in verse 9, this was kind of a, a champion verse of young single brothers at some point. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. Now that almost sounds as if you get if I'm just struggling with my purity, I just need to pick me a wife and get married. That's how that has been used several times, okay? That's that's not what this verse is saying. All right, we have to look at the context here. First of all, in chapter 6, men were visiting prostitutes. In chapter 7, the first bit of it is no intimacy in marriage. For, for whatever reason, there's a strong possibility that some of the women are withholding intimacy from the men, and they're going to prostitutes. And th that's a very strong potential that that's what's happening. And likewise, these younger men are enslaved in this prostitution as well. And so Paul's saying, look, if you're engrossed in this, the alternative is to get married and be righteous. Not just, I can't control myself, I need to pick a wife. There's a, there's a difference there, and it may be subtle, but it's still a difference. But if you don't really check the context out, you can just kind of trumpet around and say, well, I need to get married because I can't control myself. My favorite example, though, is verse 29. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good one. I was really convicted by this. I mean, I mean in fact, honey, I, I said, I'm just going to go away for a few weeks with the boys. We're going to camp. We're going to watch rugby. We're not going to shave. We're not going to shower. We're just going to eat with our hands. Why would, I'm just trying to follow the Bible, honey. I'm just trying to follow the Bible. You know, and that's comical, right? Like, of course, that's not what Paul is saying. In the context of, of, the, of the return of Jesus, there's a bit more involved there, okay? And that's funny and that's comical, but here's where it gets dangerous. Revelations chapter 3, verse 20 is a verse I heard as a teenager. I went to a camp, and they read this verse, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Someone preached a sermon, and at the end of the sermon, they read this verse, and then they said, Everybody, close their eyes and bow their head, and if you are not 
get a follower of Jesus, we'd like for you to raise your hand. And if you may have experienced this where you're kind of peeking around and look to see if anybody's doing this. And so at first, that, you know, a few people, and then you kind of get, you kind of feel guilty and okay, I'm going to raise my hand. And they, and they use this passage and they say, look, Jesus is standing at the door. He wants to come in and eat with you. Say this prayer. And then we said this prayer. And afterwards they would say, thank, thank goodness that so many of you have just accepted the Lord as your savior. And, and now you're following Jesus. Jesus. And so that was the conclusion of that passage. And you may have heard that for yourself, but if you were to actually look at Revelation chapter 3 and read the context, verse 14 says that it's written to the church in Laodicea, who has become lukewarm and needs to repent. Not a group of non-Christians who want to become Christian. It is a church that needs to repent. And right before that verse, it says, repent. So be earnest and repent. And, and in the context of that, it's Jesus saying, look, if, uh, if you recognize you're lukewarm and you repent, I'll come in and we'll eat together. And then if you continue to overcome, you'll have eternal life. Not here's how to become a Christian. That's grossly out of context. Grossly out of context. And I, and I encourage you, if, if you've heard this or if you subscribe to this, and I, I, would, I would strongly encourage you to pull someone aside after church today and say, can, can you help me understand that a bit more? Because when you look at that, that's dangerously deceptive. But it is used, and it's firmly used, that if you say that prayer, you're a Christian. That's not what that passage says at all, not even close. And just like it would be grossly misinterpreted for me to walk around with a beard and unshaven and say, I'm just trying to live as I don't have a wife. That's what that looks like as well. And so we have to be careful. This, this, this idea of proper Bible study means we, we need to really be cautious. If you don't know what the context is, be cautious. Also, Paul will explain a lot of commands, but then he'll explain a lot of principles as well. Command is, is there's no negotiation. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. There's no negotiation there. Here, however, you'll see he gives principles. Here's some ideals. But if it doesn't work in that situation, you can't get married and you're not sinning. So we should always aim for the higher ideal, but no negotiation on commands. You see how that works, and so it's important for us to have proper Bible study. Secondly, let's talk about polite problems. Men, I I believe, are notoriously bad for going to the doctor. In fact, a man walks into the doctor's office, 10, 10, oh, I don't know what that is. A man walks into the doctor's office. The doctor says, I haven't seen you in a while. And the man says, well, yeah, I've I've been sick. (laughs) Right? And, you know, I think that there there is this idea that... um, You know, we just don't want to deal with stuff. But it's actually an indication of human nature as well. When something is wrong, humanity doesn't normally come forward and say, I want to deal with this. And the reason why this happens and why we find that it's true is in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about. And he'll, he'll... 
he'll use this phrase as he starts to answer some of these questions. And then in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, he answers these questions that are actually quite polite. Hey, Paul, we have a question about marriage. If you're unmarried, if you're single, and this happens, what do you need to do? And then idolatry. Paul, we became Christians, but we used to go to the temple and eat meat, and it was sacrificed to idols. And now if we go, can we still eat the meat? That's a good theological question. Food. Which foods are clean? Which foods are not clean? How do we work this out, Paul? Good question. Freedom. Am I free to do as I want, or do I have limitations when my brother or sister is weak? Good question. Spiritual gifts. Chapter 12. We have all these spiritual gifts. How do we use them? Please instruct us, Paul. Those are very good, polite problems, aren't they? If you read through them, they're they're actually very good spiritual questions. But Paul doesn't even start addressing them until chapter 7. He deals deals with six chapters of stuff, and then he says, Now, for the matters you actually wrote about. And what does that mean, you know? Well, what, what didn't they write about? What didn't they ask instruction on? Well, you just got to look back a few chapters and find out that they didn't want to ask Paul about, Hey, Paul, we're divided. If you came to our church, it wouldn't even look like one church. Hey, Paul, there's some incest going on. And there's also immorality going on. None of that was in their letter. It was all, we really want to learn how to exercise our spiritual gifts. And we want to learn how to instruct people in marriage. And we want to learn about food and blah, blah, blah. Right? And and there's, there's a human condition that likes to present polite problems when your life's a flat out mess. We all do that. And, and, and God says, that's not the way it's going to work. Let me, let me deal with your division. Let me deal with your incest. Let me deal with your immorality. Oh, now for the questions you had. Let's talk about those. (laughs) Because everybody likes to bring the nice stuff up front. Nobody likes to bring the mess up front. Think about the way you grew up in your family. My experience, most everything was swept under the rug. Never talked about, kind of elusive, and if it did come to the surface, it would explode in anger, but the issues never really got dealt with. Right? Let's just kind of hide it and create this constant cloud of tension. Think about every politician when they get in confronted. They always talk about, they always spin circles. And think about every time you've been confronted. And that, that's the human condition. And, and so, first, God says, I want to talk about the state of your church. It's a flat out mess. And you want to talk about using gifts. I, I think it's sad. That the church was like this. It's basically imploding. Falling apart. And they want to appear spiritual to Paul. I have some questions for you. This is, this is true, right? And living as a disciple of Jesus is vastly different. That's the way the world operates. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you bring your... Me- the truth is, we're all messes. There, there's no one not a mess. All right, And if you're a disciple, you learn how to bring these things forward so that you can work on them, improve, and actually grow. Not hide them. You learn to talk about what's really going on. And allow God and the Holy Spirit and the brothers and sisters to help you grow and be more spiritual. 
But I still find it true, even in my, my own experience and my experience as a leader, is that when something comes my way and I approach it, they want to start sounding spiritual. And it's so sad because their life is imploding and they're spiraling out of control. What's your tendency? In the fellowship, is it to normally bring the good stuff forward or is it to be honest and real with your brother and sister? If you're spiraling out of control, as soon as church is over, grab somebody today. And say, look, I don't want to deal with my polite problems. I want to deal with what's really going on. And if you're spiraling out of control and someone approaches you and says, hey, I'm really concerned about you. Be humble. Because they're trying to help you. And they love you enough to approach you. And if you're helping someone that's spiraling... Be humble, lest you look down on them. Because pretty soon, the scenario will be reversed. And you'll be the one needing help. And we have to be a church of disciples who deal with reality and get each other back on track and not just deal with the polite problems. Amen? Third and lastly, the present is passing away. So here, you, you may say, man, he's dancing around all the stuff in here, what Paul's talking about. Well, overall through this chapter, there, there is a theme. And, and so they've written with, with these questions about marital status, romantic life, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and Paul will answer them, but he's basically saying, whatever your status is, is irrelevant. What really matters is you live like a believer. When you become a disciple, that transcends all of the status, all of the position. So live like that. That's what really matters. They're trying to find ways out. So they they think, oh, we want to be super spiritual and sex, even in marriage, is sinful. So the conclusion is, I need to get divorced. So I can be super spiritual. And Paul says, no, the first few verses, that's not right. You need need to be together. And even if it is apart, it should be just for a little while. But stay as you are. Your status is irrelevant. Whether it's married or separate or single or widow or divorced. Live like a believer. Over and over. Or there's people that say, oh, I'm I'm married to someone that's not a believer. I should probably dissolve the marriage. God says, no. Stay as you are. That that status is irrelevant. Live as a believer. Verse 1 through 7, it's to the married. Verse 8 through 9, it's to the unmarried. Verse 10 through 11, it's to to the married who are both believers. Verse 12 through 16 is one believer in the... In the marriage, and one's a non-believer in the marriage. Verses 25 through 38, that's virgins. Verse 39 through 40, that's married women and who have their husband pass away. But it's all about, what about my status? What do I need to do? Because I could be super spiritual if I do this. No! Live as a believer! Over and over, you'll see that kind of theme. And he even says it very specifically when he kind of goes on his tangent. Were you circumcised? Does it matter? Were you uncircumcised? Doesn't matter. Doesn't count for anything. Doesn't count. What does count is you obey the commands of God. And he'll say this, you know, even, even, several times. 
Verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Verse 24, each person responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Doesn't matter. Live as a believer. That's the theme over and over and over. And the, and the, and the support for that is verse 29 and 31. Where Paul says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, as he's coming back and explaining what I mean is that the time is short. And then in verse 31, this world in its present form is passing away. All that status stuff, irrelevant. What matters is you're living like a disciple of Jesus because this world is passing away. And all that stuff doesn't matter. Remain however you were when you were called. And, 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 and the calling is you became a disciple of Jesus. That's your calling. I think this is helpful because in the end it's simply, they have all these questions and Paul says, here's, here's some answers, here's some thoughts, but live as a disciple. The present is passing away. Live as a believer. Is that the way we live? Is that the way you live? With this context that everything's passing away, status doesn't matter, it's irrelevant, I'm focused on living as a disciple. I believe. Is that your lifestyle? This is Charles Blunden. You may have or may have not heard of him. He's a tightrope walker. He's from France. And in the 1800s, late 1800s, he became famous for tightrope walking across the Niagara Gorge. And he did a lot of tricks while he was up there. It's like 340 meters long. He's 50 meters high in the air. And he starts out by just basic tightrope across, which is impressive, first of all. But then he starts to do some tricks. He gets a chair. He sits in the chair. And then he gets, you know, he does a handstand on the chair. And um, then he, like, cooks breakfast in a pan or, you know, does all these weird tricks. And that's his brother. He gets his brother on his back and piggybacks him across. And, and then he gets a wheelbarrow. And he's like a master at hyping up the crowd. And he starts getting the crowd. He says, he does all these tricks first. And then he says, do you believe I can take my brother across this on a wheelbarrow. And the crowd's like, yeah, we definitely. And he's like, no, do, do you really believe I can take my brother on this wheelbarrow on that tightrope? And they're getting fired. They're like, yes, yeah, we know you can do it. And then he goes, you get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> and then they really see if they really believe. Oh, no, 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 no. No, it's fine for you to do it, mate. But I don't believe, you know. But there is a sentiment of this in Paul's admonition to the church. Because the way God looks at it, it's like, you know what? Married, single, yeah, you know, improve your life a lot. And that's all good, amen. But live as a believer. Don't just say, yeah, I believe, I believe. But when the time comes, you don't jump in the wheelbarrow. Live as a believer. Live as a disciple. Don't think, man, when I graduate, when I get out of high school, when I get to uni, when I get my degree, then I'm going to be setting the world on fire spiritually. Live right now as a disciple. When I get married, you better watch out, man. I'll be smoking hot. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> what does that even mean? 
reading too much of this stuff. So, <laughs> amen. The president is passing away. So, you know, <laughs> but that you get that idea, right? Like if I get the right job, if I just get in the right status, the right position spiritually, then, then I'll be living a spiritual lifestyle. Don't let your condition dictate your discipleship. You think, oh, I can't do anything. I'm a teen. Yes, you can. You can have nine visitors to a Bible talk. One tree hill. Doesn't matter. All those things. And and then Paul will list a, a, a list of things. Sorrow, buying things, using things. All of it irrelevant. Live as a disciple. And, and it works both ways. It, you know, just because your status has changed, that's all good. But if it doesn't change, that's all good as well. Doesn't matter. The emphasis is on the here and now. Because what, what, what's being said here is that time is short. There's a decisive event that has opened up the second half. Jesus dying and resurrecting on the, cl- on the cross. Now halftime is over. First half is gone. The final season of the show is in. There's a limited amount of time that we're in. The present form is passing away. Live as a disciple. That's what he's expressing to them. And that's the way God wants us to live. And we can all live this way if we take on this conviction. The present in its, passive, in its present form is passing away. As we conclude this morning, it is important to have proper Bible study. If you've never studied the Bible, make sure you do it properly. Make sure the person teaching you does it properly. You got Context is so important. We can be grossly misled by faulty Bible study. Stop dealing with your polite problems only. Bring the reality to the front. And let God and His Spirit and His Scriptures sort us out. And let's all live as disciples in the present, with an eye on the future, knowing that all of these things are irrelevant because the present form is passing away. Let all of us live as believers. Amen.